what do you see as the definition of postmodernism? It's really a broad topic. And it's an interesting one to me because it's ultimately very philosophical. And I tend to try to stray away from that on a daily basis. But this idea of postmodernism, which, as you mentioned, is something that I've been thinking about and writing about a little bit more lately. That was Dr. Ben Lockman. I'm Tom Fox, and welcome to Greetings and Felicitations, a podcast where I delve into different ideas, topics, and subjects that interest me. Today, we're going to take a look at postmodernism and how it's impacting the current social media-driven world. I know you'll enjoy this most special episode. We are today. So could we start off by, or could you rather start off by saying, Telling us, what do you see as the definition of postmodernism? Yeah, good question. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it's really a broad topic, and it's an interesting one to me because it's it's ultimately very philosophical, and I tend to try to stray away from that on a daily basis. But this idea of postmodernism, which, as you mentioned, uh, is something that I've kind of been thinking about and writing about a little bit more lately. It was a philosophical movement that started in the late 1800s. The term first came to use in the 1870s. And, and to me, as I delved into the, the idea of postmodernism and, and why this should matter to people, is that the notion of it is that it rejects, a, presents, I guess I'll say, a skepticism towards a grand narrative of modern culture. So it takes the current state of time which includes now, one in which many of the problems of the ancient world we've solved, we've gotten those things squared away. Postmodernism suggests that it's fashionable to reject clear-minded rational thinking. So it basically distinguishes itself from other schools of thought by rejecting universal truths, by rejecting an objective reality. And you know, ultimately, this happens at the expense of I think, critical thinking skills of the practitioner. Another main feature of postmodernism is this idea of anti-authoritarianism or refusal to recognize the authority of particular disciplines. And this kind of collapsing of the distinction between high culture and mass or popular culture. And, and I think my, my, my parting thought on that is, if that seems familiar, it's because that's basically what I think social media is. It's collapsing the power distance between the general public and experts that we've seen, you know, over the past several years with at least the pandemic in particular. So the, um, I think you articulated that this uh, philosophy, I'm going to call it a philosophy, uh, sort of developed in the second half of the 19th century and moved forward early on in the arts and other media. And now has moved into more of critical thinking realm, does it reject things like natural law or a Lockean approach uh, to, to law or society? Yeah, for sure. There are f- well, there are several main tenets that it holds to be true, but a few that popped into mind is that postmodernism rejects as true the idea that there's an objective natural reality, which is a reality whose existence and properties are independent of human beings. They, they reject this idea as what they call naive realism. According to postmodernists, the idea of objective reality is a conceptual construct and an artifact of scientific practice and language. 
Another feature is that it rejects the descriptive and explanatory statements of scientists and historians that they could be objectively true or false. They deny the viewpoint and they say again, because we, we reject objective natural reality, there's no such thing as the truth. Another big one is rejecting the idea that through the use of reason and logic, that human beings can change themselves and societies for the better. This showed up a bit in the art movement as well, which I won't delve into because I certainly am not an art historian, but the whole idea of the Enlightenment, the postmodernists think is just something that is faith in science and technology. And then, you know, another of the main tenets is that they reject that it is possible, at least in principle, to create general theories that explain many aspects of the natural world. So they, again, deny that there are aspects of reality that are, that are objective, that there are statements about reality that are true or false, that it's possible to even have knowledge about such statements, and that there are even objective or absolute moral values. So, you know, with, with those, what, three or four kind of rejections of the things that I hold near and dear, um, it stands out to me as an interesting paradigm because if I back up and say, well, how would that manifest? We, we live in a world of anti-vaxxers. We live in a world uh, where people have believed Kyrie Irving, for example, flat earthers, people who are voracious consumers of ghost haunting TV shows. So shows like Ghost Hunters, Paranormal Investigators, those are a few of the most popular shows on television. They pull in between 1.3 and 2.5 million viewers weekly in the U.S. alone. And uh, this fellow Tom Nichols wrote a great book called The Death of Expertise, and he addresses that situation within which we live, where the general public hates the idea now. It seems that there's a lot of hatred for this idea of expertise, and instead elevates the public elevates things like social media opinion to the same level of truth as scientific fact. So it struck me in listening to that, or at least I drew the analogy to former Harvard professor Timothy Leary with drop out, tune in, and turn on, or drop out, turn on, and tune in. And many of the ideas that I heard you describe, Ben, were things that I heard in the 60s, but it was for a very different community. It was a community who, who rejected the values of, of their parents, rejected the values of the organizational man from the 50s, and really wanted to take society in a different direction. That is very different than this concept as has been embraced in this century. With that analogy back to the 60s, is, do you find that to be valid? Something else going on back then? Yeah, I think it's exactly the same thing. I think rejecting bureaucracy was something that sprung from the same point. And, um, you know, if you think about some of the diametrically opposed, we'll say, socio-political views now, you know, whether something is in, enraptured in wokeism or not, really comes down along seemingly political lines. And it's almost like what you had mentioned with, with rejecting the, the bureaucratic movements and things, where I think there are these retro cycles where people who live in the current era, you know, we're, we're lavished with lots of knowledge and technology that we didn't have 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, it becomes fashionable to say, well, we don't really need those things. And, you know, probably the, the, the presumptions and paradigms people had 
weren't true, you know, and maybe that's something that evolutionarily uh, has been helpful to us. I mean, it seems to take us back, like take one step forward, take two or three steps back, but it might be something that, you know, as a species uh, helps us to, we live in these retro cycles where, you know, our children would reject the things that we held near and dear. That's what my parents did. You know, we'll pave our own way. And that's what we did. You know, why would we want to do the things that our parents wanted to do? And, you know, they did the things that their, or they, they rallied against the things that their parents held near and dear. So I think, you know, the behaviorally in society, there might be something to this idea of let's reject what previous generations have done and try to find out our own truths. The problem with that is that when you're coming up against an established body of scientific knowledge, and not that science can't change, to me, part of the paradigm of science is that it should continuously refine. But I think importantly, when we establish scientific facts, they're true whether or not you believe them. So many of the things that we've solved, you know, the fact that smartphones work, the fact that we can put a space telescope a million miles from Earth in a stable gravitational point, those are things that we've solved and addressed. We understand them. So thinking that those are opinions and are something that even could be rejected, I think that's where the, the problem lies. Don Adams once observed, I'll have to paraphrase it, but something like facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes or inclinations or the dictates of our passions, they can't alter the state of facts and evidence. So... Would this new framework be properly characterized as moral relativism or maybe something more nefarious, such as doublespeak from George Orwell's 1984? Mm, I think, yeah, elements of both. I think definitely relativism is something that pops up a lot in the, in the postmodernist literature, I'll say, or, you know, the, the conversations that people have about how reality actually is from the perspective of the postmodernists. I think relativism for sure. I think by rejecting the things that we know to be true, there are, if not nefarious, at least pernicious elements to it that, that, you know, make it very difficult to get beyond where we are right now, because there are always those pieces of inertia, I'll say, right? The people who believe in, the idea of relativism that holds us back from moving in more of lockstep in society with the things that, again, we know to be true. Um, you know, thinking about that too, there's a branch of philosophy that concerns itself with how knowledge evolves in a society. So basically, how do all members of society occupy and maintain a similar worldview? And if you think about it, that's pretty profound. So, you know, we're all individuals functioning in society. And though we work together in groups and, you know, we sometimes watch some of the same TV shows, maybe participate in social media together, it really is a, a profoundly interesting thing that if you back up to a regional view, nation state view, a global view, that uh, we occupy and you know, somehow manifest this worldview where we can, you know, all basically share knowledge and, and share this worldview together. So that's the idea of the zeitgeist. So every period of, of history and, and the current period, they're punctuated by these overall movements. Uh, 
And, you know, we can only really understand them, I think, by looking back in the lens of history. You know, what were things like in the 60s? What were things like in the 1930s, in the 1870s? And that's the framework within which everybody was occupying, you know, a certain mindset. And I think that probably goes to the idea I mentioned earlier with social media. You know, if, if you think about how we're all sharing some similar worldview, if people are participating on Instagram, on Twitter, whatever their favorite platforms are, TikTok now more than ever, that idea of what's popular, what's viral sharing ideas really does shape society and civilization as a whole. And I think the pernicious element of it right now is this idea that we've really flattened the ability for people to share opinions. So again, rejecting the idea of experts and expertise, and it, that really drives us in the wrong direction. Now, there is a logical fallacy that I won't dip too much into, but the appeal to authority, where you say, Harvard professor so-and-so said the following, that doesn't necessarily believe mean that everybody should believe that because of their authority stature. But at the same time, if you think about something like climate change, when you have at the current moment, you know, maybe 97% of, of climatologists, climate scientists who agree to the idea that there is some form of climate change occurring, uh, whether it's anthropogenic caused by humans, to reject that by saying, well, that's just an appeal to authority. I think that's a problem because scientists tend to want to pick holes in each other's work, really. In a lot of cases, it's not in a scientist's best interest to agree with other scientists because they can carve out a niche and, you know, really pave their career by finding something new. If you were a scientist looking at the climate, for example, and you were able to say, you know what, I found evidence that, that climate change isn't happening. If you could really document, document that evidence thoroughly, you could be you know, the lone dissenter who, when people review your data and information, say, yeah, he's onto something or she's onto something. And that could really propel you forward. So it's it's really not something that scientists tend to want to do all the time, agree with each other. So when there is scientific consensus, it doesn't necessarily mean that something is true, but it adds a lot of meta-analytic weight to some of those ideas. Let me focus on social media for a few moments. Because since probably the development of the printing press, we've had some mm -hmm. form of media to disseminate ideas. And before that, it was handwritten mm -hmm. media. And before that was Greek order speaking. So we've been able to disseminate information. And I have a colleague who, who advocates that what social media has brought is an amplification of those voices. So for instance, the Catholic priest, Charles Laughlin, in the, or Coughlin rather, in the 1930s, was virulently anti-Semitic, and he was on the radio, and he attacked FDR. Right. Uh, there were other voices saying the same thing. They eventually went away. But the amplification of social media, is it that people are just have bigger soapboxes to stand on and bigger microphones to say it louder? Or is it perhaps... I like your word pernicious rather than nefarious, pernicious because someone can really get lost in those rabbit holes and become radicalized in a way that they would have had to go to the library and researched before, and they wouldn't have taken the time to do that. One or both, or maybe even something different. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think that's a good way to put it is the amplification of voices on social media. 
I think that's exactly what it is. When people, when this, that power distance collapses and anybody can post anything, then there are those consumers who could be, as you say, radicalized. I like that. You know, when, uh, you know, let's say terror cells are trying to radicalize others, they really create echo chambers where people are hearing the same things over and over again, and that becomes their single source of truth. And if you're looking to social media daily, because, you know, let's face it, there's a lot of evidence that social media tends to be pretty addicting for people. You see a lot of these viewpoints that aren't necessarily based in fact or reality. And in the past, you know, when Gutenberg developed the printing press, there were things like, and frankly, I think that was probably the most important invention in civilization was the printing press. You know, the ability to not have to handwrite a scroll or a, a book or a document, which is one person taking days, weeks, months to produce one volume. You know, now you can mass produce things that, you know, like a newspaper that everybody can read, again, get the zeitgeist all on the same page. And now we're in a situation where that's happening through social media, where people can just put any thought out into the wild. And it's, it's really, you know, consumer beware, consumer of that information beware. You know, what's the source of the information? How much anecdote is it? We really need an antidote to anecdote. And that antidote, I think, is requiring better sources of information, requiring evidence and fact to stand behind what it is that people are saying. The One of the phrases from the Trump administration I ruminated at a lot was alternative facts. And I thought about it mainly in the context of the legal world, which is my professional background. Yeah. And can you, could you present quote, alternative facts, end quote, after having sworn to tell the truth on a Bible in court. And if you believe those alternative facts, would that meet the qualification for you to say that without perjuring yourself at trial? And I never came to a concrete answer on that, but is it alternative facts or is it this bigger problem of amplifications and other issues? Yeah, I the alternative facts wording is an interesting one. The exact same thing happens in medicine, where, as you know, there's a niche called alternative medicine. And I would argue that there really is no such thing as alternative medicine. When you have alternative medicine, it's just something that hasn't been rigorously trialed with the scientific method. And if an alternative treatment, not that they can't work, if an alternative treatment stands up to the rigors of clinical trials of surviving in the wild and demonstrating uh, actual assistance to patients, then it ceases to become alternative medicine. And frankly, it just becomes medicine. Um, so I think the, the whole idea of alternative facts to me is the same kind of thing. There, there, are, there are facts which are supported by data and evidence, and then there are alternative viewpoints which are not facts at all. Uh, you know, as you say, there could be people who swear on the Bible to not perjure themselves in court. And that, you know, brings up a whole other issue. You know, potentially those, those people are secular and that gesture means nothing to them. And I, I think that, you know, it becomes, to some degree, you've got the defense attorney versus the prosecutor uh, in cases like that, where 
they're each trying to poke holes in the other's arguments in order to exonerate somebody, for example. And when you're doing that, you're not, in my mind, you're not presenting alternative facts. You're either corrupting the facts and evidence that exist, or frankly, you're just lying. And the idea is, can you sway the jury one way or another? And, you know, the jury of one's peers then become an important arbiter in that situation, because unfortunately, it's then how how well you've done as the attorney swaying the jury, which could be as much ledger demand and showboating as it could be accurate facts and evidence. You know, it in order to sway people doesn't take much. You know, think about people who have been good at, you know, performing magic and illusions. It's really easy to make people believe something is true that isn't true. And for those who are good at double speak and good at poking holes in evidence that exists or evidence that doesn't exist, it becomes easy to sway the people who are making the ultimate decision. Uh, so to me, alternative facts really just boil down to facts or not. So having identified the problem, how could we move towards a solution or possible solutions? Is it dialogue? Is it talking to those who have viewpoints different than us? What would you suggest in the realm of uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis? Mm. Yeah, I think the, so. To me, this this comes down to anecdote again. So the idea of anecdote, you know, a personal story. So somebody believes something to be true, and that becomes their anecdote. The problem is everybody just anecdotes on social media all the time. And, and frankly, before social media existed, that's what people did anyway. You, you, you know, hundreds of years ago, you may meet at the pub and over beers or over a coffee at the coffee shop, you would share anecdotes. That's what people love to do. That's the symbolism and storytelling that we were evolutionarily designed to participate in. So I think maybe there's some strength there. You know, we, we've been uh, designed at some level and evolved along this this continuum where stories were the ancient way of saying, you know, don't go over there, there's danger over there, you know, or, hey, there's potential resources and riches over here. And sharing that information became an evolutionary advantage. The problem is that, um, you know, the as the saying goes, the plural of anecdote isn't data. So just because you have a lot of collected anecdotes doesn't mean that constitutes scientific data and information. So I think what we can do to help solve this is to require more and require better data and information from people. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to, you know, become a citizen scientist about everything, but it's being more critical and more skeptical about information that's presented, uh, you know, not believing everything that comes across. And, you know, when situations like that arise, do your best to be a little bit more incredulous about, you know, what it is you're hearing from somebody, which can be hard sometimes because we also want to be uh, likable. So here's, here's a little personal anecdote that I'll share with you. Recently, I was chatting with some friends and colleagues, and one of them said matter-of-factly, 
well, I'm trying to cut down on coffee and caffeine because it's dehydrating. And everyone else who was in the group, there was a lot of head nodding going on because a statement like that maybe feels like it should be true. First of all, I would say that people and Americans in particular tend to be hyperhydrated. We don't need to be carrying around bottles of water everywhere all day. But the comment about caffeine isn't strictly true at all. Coffee and tea, most caffeinated beverages are actually net hydrating. They provide more hydration through their water content than the diuretic effect of the caffeine removes from your body. So it's not true. And when you hear things like that, you shouldn't just necessarily nod your head in agreement, but instead maybe challenge the premise which the comment was based. So there's always this tension between being constructively corrective uh, and wanting as a human to be agreeable. And those are often opposite goals, right? Because if you find yourself as one who challenges everything, then you tend to be a more disagreeable person. So I think there are ways to do it smartly maybe a little more softly, but it's not just believing and agreeing with what those things that everybody just thinks to be true. What is the role of primary education in this? Uh, So for instance, in the third grade, I was taught the scientific method. Is a teaching of that sort of rigor allow a child to have a basis to then move forward to other levels of more critical thinking, or would you advocate something else? No, I think that's exactly it. You know, the the idea of science being some vaunted thing, on one hand, I think it should be because it's the pillar upon which the best we know finds itself standing. The flip side of that, though, is science itself isn't really a thing. It's more of a, it's a verb. It's a process. It's something that you do. So as you say, you know, you use the scientific method You observe things, you collect evidence and information, you try to falsify your hypothesis. And it really is about critical thinking skills. I think the problem is that people are exposed to it at a young age. Generally, it's in science curriculum, elementary school, middle school, things like that. But unless it's something that you consciously try to practice, those skills, you know, something that just tend to fall away. You know, everything gets better with practice. And if people aren't used to um, a level of sophistication in their thinking, it's kind of easier to just go through life and, you know, believe what you hear, believe what you read. It's funny, though, because when you survey people, everyone tends to think of themselves as more critical, more skeptical than they really are. So some of it could be more like the Dunning-Kruger effect, where if you've got just a little bit of knowledge, you think you're much more expert than you are. But I definitely think that It doesn't take much. You know, people need not study science as a discipline in in all of its various forms for multiple years in order to get better at critical thinking. It just requires, you know, challenging the premise of information. If I think about that anecdote about, you know, the, the caffeine and coffee intake, not just accepting things at face value. That's really what it boils down to. How am I not going to be fooled into thinking something's true that isn't true? Ben, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but this has been a fascinating exploration. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Greetings and Felicitations. As it is clear, if you've listened to any of the episodes in this podcast, I have a wide range of topics on this podcast. It's sort of a catch-all for things that interest me. So I appreciate you indulging me 
in this exploration of postmodernism in the age of social media. I hope you'll join me again for another episode of Greetings and Felicitations, which is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.